All right, we'll start with this. Anybody got anything that they just burning to say? Maybe insights, or why don't we do this? What did you have any aha moments? Aha! I didn't think about that. Or aha! I've been thinking about that, but it's good to hear somebody else say it. Anybody have any of that? Aha moments. You got anything, Sue? Well, uh, that was the last part of our uh, discussion. Okay. Aha. Uh-huh. All right. Well, tell us your ahas. Well, uh, in eternity, we will never stop experiencing aha uh-huh or mm-hmm. awesome moments of God's glory. Because we'll finally be able to see it in all its fullness. Yeah. That's something I, I can't even remember who I was talking to, but just God has to veil his glory because we can't handle it. And I remember talking with one person, and I think I had prayed, you know how, don't you love it when people critique your prayer after you're finished? And so I prayed, Lord, help us to sense your presence. And then after the prayer, he said, you know, you really don't want to pray that because, you know what, you look at the scripture, and whenever Jesus' presence, they, people like go dead and stuff like that. Well, you know what I mean, but um, that's it. Yes, he did. There you go. Yeah. And he touched, even when with John, he touched John and, and comforted John. So, but he veils his presence because, or he veils his glory because we can't fathom it and we can't handle it as mortal humans. But what are some other aha moments that you got? Yeah, years ago, I heard Alistair Begg at a pastor's conference, and he said something along the lines of, our temptation, especially in the Reformed community, is we just want to throw a huge slab of meat on the table and say, gnaw on that. And what we need to do is cut it up into bite-sized pieces and then give it to people and say, here, taste how wonderful this is. And um, that, w- that image stuck with me because I was at that time, I was a new pastor, of course, I felt like I was God's gift to pastor it and all that. Some say I still think that way, but no, but I just needed to hear, and again, it's one of the hard things I had to learn in my early pastorate is pastoring is not about, it is about content communication, but that's not all it is. It's about relationship, relationship and relational connection, trust, so that like you say, earn the right to be heard. The problem, especially people who've been burned by church, their presupposition is going to be you're going to tell them what to do in a very judgmental way. And so you've got to over, and this is where the struggle is, because how do you recognize that presupposition and then you're addressing it, but how do you do that without compromise? Because you don't want to water it down to where you take it, take the gospel out, but you want to do it. What'd you say? Yeah, and you never know what God's going to do with that. So, because isn't that what God does with us? <laughs> you know, He meets us, and He doesn't overpower us, but He's He's persistent with us, but He never compromises truth because He is truth, and so that's how. And this is the confidence we have as those who are discipleship makers. I don't know what that was, but uh, discipleship makers um, in the spirit of Christ. 
is that Christ is doing it through us. And that's our confidence. That's our, that humbles us. But it, it gives us hope that God's going to do something as we are seeking to be faithful to him and minister not only his message, but also in his manner. So what I want to do now, oh, well, it went all the way back to the start. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go. That's. In, yeah, let's start over from last night. In case you weren't here. All right. There we go. Talking to others in a fearful and anxious culture. So let's jump into this. America's worst mom. I read this in a book, and it was interesting. We do a parenting conference. Katie and I do a parenting conference, and one of the things we have is something called free-range kids, and I didn't know exactly where the story came from, but then I read it in this book. So here's the story. Lenore Skenazi permitted her nine-year-old son to have an adventure. Some of y'all may know this story. Her nine-year-old son was begging her to have an adventure. She wanted... He wanted her, take me someplace, Mom, and let me find my way home by myself. Anybody have any kids like that? I want to be independent. I want to be my own man. All right, so she gave him a subway map, a metro card, $20, and at that time they still had quarters where you make a phone call. All right, so... And she went to Bloomingdale's, which is close to the 59th Street, Lexington Avenue subway station. And so what she did was she let, she let him off there, and he found his way home. 45 minutes later, he came home. His dad was waiting for him, and he was ecstatic because he had done it. So Skenasi, uh, she wrote an article on the adventure and what she had done, some people applauded her, most people condemned her. How dare you, you, and that's where she got the title, America's Worst Mom. Okay. When I told this story at a parenting conference, it was interesting, and I was trying to watch your, y'all didn't have a lot. Some of you sound like you knew this story. How many of you heard this story before? All right, so you knew the story. How many of y'all, I mean, and be honest, would sort of say, yeah, never going to do that. Sort of agree with the America's worst mom thing, all right? How many of y'all say, yeah, great idea. In fact, I'm going to go take my nine-year-old right today, or my nine-year-old grandchild. Take them right out and do it. No, all right, so, so you might not think she's America's worst mom, but you're not going to embrace it either, all right. I, I just went wouldn't come. <laughs> he wouldn't come. He goes, I'm heading to Memphis. <laughs> all right, okay, well, uh, she embraced this title, and uh, she started a blog called Free Range Kids and has a nonprofit, Let Grow, and actually, this, the letgrow.com is her website. It's still active. I checked it the other day. And what she's doing is basically giving advice to parents about how you let your kids grow up. And, how, and 
the thing about it is today this is very countercultural. And the th interesting thing is, Ganazi said, you know, what had triggered the outrage and condemnation? And it's what she called safetyism. And there's a difference between safety, which is a good thing, and safetyism, which is something you're pursuing as an end in itself. And it's related to what we sometimes call helicopter parenting or lawnmower parenting where a helicopter parent is one that just hovers over. We had these in our uh, nursery at Kirk of the Hills, <clears throat> and it would be moms, because we had the windows right in the room, and there would be moms who would not leave the windows, because they wanted to make sure, was their little Johnny, was everybody being nice to Johnny, was, uh, you know, was people sharing the toys, and if Johnny, Johnny couldn't handle it on his own. And so if something wasn't going well, they had to step in. And if Johnny you know, fell off the rubber ball or whatever it was, the worker couldn't take care of it. Mom had to go in. And so safetyism was what it was. Lawnmower parenting. My wife is a, <clears throat> she's an administrative clerk in a high school in Gwinnett County. And so Gwinnett County, she deals with this all the time. She does AP testing. Okay, so she's the clerk over AP tests. High school students in advanced placement, getting ready to go to college. And she still has students come in. To, I, know you, I know there was an email about signing up for the test, but my mom didn't do it. Or the mom will call and say, my child, should, I, I need to do this for my child. And my, my wife is like, no, your child needs to do it for himself or herself. But this is sort of how we're doing. And everything has to be, well, what Skenazi was saying, the freedom she had in the 1970s, and if you look at the data, I'm talking evidence. If you look at the evidence, the crime was worse in the 1970s than it is in 2008. So by the data, her child was safer in 2008 than she was in 1970. By the data. <laughs> but parents say, I don't care about the data. I don't feel it's safe. So therefore, it is not safe. What's your data? I don't have to have data. I feel it's not safe, so it's not safe. All of us struggle with this. Now, where did I make a mistake as a parent? I had one of those nine-year-old kids, and I never would have let. <laughs> I never would have taken her to a subway. However, what I did do is... Our kids like to do, um, they like to do homework on the roof of the house. <laughs> and so we had a one-story house, and it was, it was a ranch home, and we had a little back, we had a porch with a hard thing. And so what they would like to do is they, would, they knew how to get the ladder out of the garage and put it up and crawl up there, and they'd sit on our three-season room doing their homework. 
And then after they were finished with their homework, guess what they did? Jump off the and they to this day, my boys and my daughter say it was the most fun they ever had. <laughs> One time they did it, and a neighbor came down the road and called to my kids, get off the roof. Now, my wife had given, now, this is my wife did it. You know, my wife said they could get on the roof and do the home. We knew what they were going to do. Could they have broken their leg? Could they have broken their arm? Yes, they could have. What was better for them? I don't know. You, now you're probably saying, why am I listening to this guy? He was a horrible parent. He was America's worst dad. So, but what happened? Secularism, here's what happened. Secularism in our culture. Paul David Tripp, uh, I read this, and something he says, secularism has led to a spiritual darkness. And what happens in spiritual darkness is there's a general unease that exist, and it sort of permeates our culture. Some of you may have, um, I've sensed it a little bit as I've traveled internationally. Uh, I sensed it in Africa where there was a lot of animism in Ghana. I, went, I did some teaching in Ghana. I've heard people that have gone to India, they've sensed it more. It's just there's a, a darkness, a heaviness, and it creates an anxiety. And as a Christian with a Christian worldview, I said, it's spiritual, it, spiritual powers and principalities. And so what happens is there's this generalized fear and anxiety that people can't put their finger on, but they just feel it. And what happens is it comes into the church as well. And so what you have are people with good intentions plus a longing for control, comfort, safety. They're trying to deal with that anxiety that they're feeling, and what happens is you have reaction, and if you don't respond the way I think you should respond, it becomes a point of division between us. Now, I spoke to a friend of mine a couple of years ago when we were going through some crisis in, in our denomination, and he said something that has stuck with me. He says, fear is the go-to emotion in the PCA. When we're struggling with something, we don't like something, we fear. A friend of mine who is, uh, he's a professor, he's an OPC pastor. He, uh, <laughs> he said that one of the things that we do in reform circles, especially conservative reform circles, is, you know, our charismatic friends, they'll say, you know, the Lord revealed this to me, or um, uh, God spoke to me, and then that becomes a trump card. If I say that, you can't question it. That's how the people, you know what we do in our circles? If we don't do this, the culture is going to just be lost. If we don't, if we don't vote for this change in the book of church order, our culture will be lost. If we don't say this thing to the, per, to the President of the United States, our culture will be lost. That's our, the Lord told me. Why? Because we are so fearful. Now, I heard that from an OPC pastor. Those of you who don't know the OPC, the OPC, some in the OPC think we're liberal in the PCA. Now, Alan doesn't. Alan's sort of, but... And then another friend of mine in OPC, he said this. Uh, when, he says, you know, Stephen, 
the PCA, they just caved to the culture. And when I heard him say that, I thought what he meant was we just sort of go with the flow and we compromise the gospel. He said, no, that's not what I mean. He's like, you and the PCA let political things drive your conversations in your denomination. Rather than, what does the Word of God say? Let's hold on to the Word of God and minister it to a culture. And the reason is, as I press down with this OPC brother, he's like, it's because of the fear that we have. Well, the spirit of the age does affect behavior in the church. So our question is, how do we make disciples in the anxious fog of today's culture? Now, here's something that some of you may be familiar with. This is called a Necker cube. Now, which way is the cube facing? Is it looking down to the right or up to the left? <laughs> it's changing. Wait a minute. This is the cube. Are y'all able to see it? All right. It's an optical illusion. So in one case, if you're focusing on this quadrant right here, and you're able to look down, if you're looking at this quadrant up here, you're looking, or you're viewing it from the top down or from the bottom up. It's the same cube, but a different perspective. Now, how many of you who see it like this are going to fight the people who see it like this? Yeah. <laughs> you will. <laughs> but what the point here is so often when we're dealing with things in an anxious culture, we're actually dealing with the, here it is, but we're, we're fighting over a perspective how do we begin to see things from the other person's perspective? And that opens up communication. Seeing it from the other person's perspective is part of that relational thing that we want to do in our discipleship. Now, here's something we've got to keep in mind. 1 Corinthians. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is something that we have to understand as Christians who hold to a Christian worldview. The things of God cannot be understood until God changes the person's heart. So all of us, whether you understand who Van Til is or not, you are a presuppositionalist with regard to your apologetics. Right, Melvin? <laughs> but sometimes God uses evidence. So those of you who are evidentiary apologists, <laughs> sometimes God uses the evidence to bring the new life. So it's both and, which is why I follow Francis Schaeffer. Now, some of you are going like, will you please shut up? That's, but for those of you who are more into that stuff, Melvin, that's for you. That, the whole time, that's for you. All right, so, but here's what Paul also says. So he says this in 1 Corinthians 2, but then he goes down to 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you guys, Corinthians, and you remember in 1 Corinthians 1, they said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. They were dividing among themselves. And Paul says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. I could not address you as those whose hearts have been changed. Why? Because you're working out of the flesh. And how do I know you're working out of the flesh? Because you say, 
I'm of him. I'm of this guy. Some of them mean think, well, I'm of Jesus. And it's, we divide into the tribes, and that di- division is a, it's, comes from a humanism, a secularism, rather than the work of the Spirit. And so as we engage with others in a discipleship relationship, this is what we have to keep in mind. Not only, it could be, go to this table, you know, the ones that we're talking about, the pagans, they don't have the mind to be able to experience it. But all of us in the church, we're dealing with people who are still progressively being sanctified. And so how do we engage them knowing that they're still struggling with the fleshly mentality? All of us struggle with this. Now, in addition to the Necker cube, has an impossible cube. Now, what's up with the impossible cube? Is that a difference in perspective? No. This is impossible. <laughs> this cannot exist. It's an optical illusion, and, uh, but you view it one way. And so what we have to understand is sometimes we'll deal with people who have a perspective, and so the goal is to how do we refine the perspective. And some people will have, the, have a worldview that is not based on truth. And so what we're having to do there is refute it because you can't have a different perspective because there is no, I mean, it was, it's just wrong. Now the problem is how you tell a person it's wrong, that's where you have to tread lightly because we live in an anxious culture. And when you tell me that my whole worldview is wrong, what's going to happen to me emotionally? It's all, you know, every, all my hopes are shot. And so you're not attacking my, my thoughts, you're attacking me. Don't we see that in our culture? Especially our political culture. That's ad hominem arguments. That's how I'm going to attack you. And we finally just, instead of going to attacking ideas, we're just skipping and just attacking them directly. Well, here's a book that my sister told me about when we were to her. She's struggling with her kids, the same we're struggling with our kids. And she had this book. Now, Greg Lukanov and Jonathan Haidt are not believers, they are not Christians. They are secularists. They are proud secularists. Uh, Jonathan Hyde, have any of y'all read The Righteous Mind? Okay, less. <laughs> I haven't read it. I've heard it on audio tape. If you want to understand how an evolutionist tries to explain morality, read Jonathan Hyde's The Righteous Mind because that's what he tries to do. And uh, he begs the question, circular reasoning, but he does it in a very good way. <laughs> I mean, it's very entertaining, and, and he tries to keep it at you know, regular people language. But Jonathan Haidt, he and, and this, Greg, what they said in this book, The Coddling of the American Mind, this is what has happened in the American education system over the last 20 plus years. 
And the subtitle is How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And it's really coming of age in the mid, like 2013, 14, 15 is what we were seeing on college campuses. And so it's well-intentioned overprotection that may end up doing more harm than good. And they talk about three great untruths. And I'm going to sort of, I'm convinced that these untruths have actually seeped into the culture, especially as I see the culture in the PCA. So how are we going to deal with it? Well, one is the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And so we've got to protect you more and more and more. We've got to build bigger car seats and, and other things like that. Um, and we have to, you can't, we have to put you in, wrap you in bubble wrap before you go up and do your homework on top of the roof because something might happen if you fall off. The untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. The untruth of us versus them. Life boils down to, it's a battle between good people and bad people. Now, why do they call them untruths? Untruths because, and he said there are three characteristics of these untruths. One is it contradicts ancient wisdom that's been passed down from all cultures throughout history. So these things that we're presenting now actually contradict what previous generations have said. Not just previous Christian generations, but previous generations. Second, they contradict modern research. Going back to Skenazi, the data shows it's safer in 2008 than in 1970 in New York City. But that doesn't matter. Data doesn't matter if I don't agree with it. Thirdly, it actually harms people. These untruths actually make people, it hurts them in some way. So let's unpack them. The untruth of fragility. What is it? It's comfort and physical safety show progress. But what happens in a culture that has more comfort and more physical safety, we lower the bar on the intolerable levels of discomfort and risk. So, we get used to this level, and we want to make sure we not only maintain that level, but it becomes even safer. So we lower the bar on what risk we're willing to accept. <coughs> and so this is how the goal of parents and government is you shield those who are in your care, that they won't have anything that causes them discomfort. My wife sees this. Uh, what they've done in her school, it used to be if you're tardy, there are consequences for being tardy to a class. So they have seven minutes to get from one classroom to the other. When my daughter graduated in 2020, it was five minutes to get class to class. They've expanded it to seven minutes. You tardy, you had a consequence. Last year, they said, as long as you're, you're tardy for six times, there's no consequence. Guess what happened? Everybody's tardy. Guess what's happening now? They're, well, they're, they're talking about it. They're wanting to increase it. 
Why? Well, the, the children are, it's just so far from building A to building C. Now my 22-year-old daughter says, I made it! <laughs> but that's how, that's how the idea of the house is running, is we're lowering the bar. And we do this across the board. Make sure everything is safe, working through issues is bad. Now, how does this play out in PCA churches? Avoid any idea or view that is secular or non-reformed. I know of what I speak. A couple of years ago, some of our churches, and I might make you mad if I said, some of our churches actually have Lenten devotionals where they, there is a church season, ecclesiastical season, called Lent. We had somebody on our women's blog whose church does that, PCA Church, in good standing in their presbytery, she wrote an article about how to use the season of Lent to prepare for the celebration of Good Friday and Easter. I got multiple emails about how bad it was that the denomination's discipleship ministry allowed a blog post like that. It's Roman Catholic, is what they said. Now, that is factually in error, because not just Roman Catholics. Are. What happened this year is we had one of our churches in the Atlanta area wanted to have an Ash Wednesday service. Guess what they wanted to do? Put ashes on their forehead. I did not know this, but you can actually order ashes online from Amazon if you want to use it. Less, uh, just no extra charge for that, whatever you want to do. Now, if I told, <laughs> I told them, I said, I am not going to advertise that. But this friend of mine said, Stephen, I used to be a pastor in uh, North Alabama. I haven't had to deal with this before. What are churches doing about it? And so I, I said, well, this is, of course, I'm coordinator of discipleship. This is an opportunity for discipleship. <laughs> and so what he was going to do, and we talked about, you know, where's your congregation? What are you trying to accomplish and all that? They ended up, they did, not, they did have a service, but they didn't impose ashes. And because the, it was a weaker brother issue, there were some who would truly be offended. And they, we don't want to offend these others. We know the background. We know it, it could be used, but it's not necessary because God's given us the Lord's Supper. He's given us repentance. And so we talked through that, and I said, this is an opportunity. In the military, whenever you had a difficult thing, I had a boss that say, Stephen, this is an opportunity to excel. And that's what this, I said. This is an opportunity to excel. You can show people and learn. But what happens is we tell people in our churches, especially children and youth, what to believe rather than provide tools to help them engage with culture. I see this especially in upper elementary and youth. I talked to, I went to RUF training a couple years ago and I, I was able to talk to some RUF campus ministers 
and I got to talk with the guy who was at Harvard, <clears throat> and I said, if you could talk to youth pastors, what would you say? And he said, youth pastors need to deal with real issues in youth ministry and not just let the kids go to college and deal with it there. But you talk to our youth ministry team and what they're seeing among their peers who do youth ministry, PCA churches, and I might step on toes here, especially PCA churches where there's a heavy homeschool movement or classical Christian movement, do not want their kids to engage with secular issues. They want to, and this is somehow how it's, they want to provide the bubble as long as possible. And they said, because they can't handle it. What you want, and this is what I'm convinced of, what you want as a parent and a grandparent is you want to have that child engage with these issues while they're there with you so that you can help them. And actually, they use in the book, they say, what we want is not, uh, we want anti-fragility, where they are able to, they're, they're so equipped, where they've sort of, it's almost like they've been inoculated in some ways against these things. They know how to answer it, and they know they can stand firm. And so they go in being leaders rather than followers. Now, Les, as a former RUF campus minister, what would you add to that? <laughs> what did you see? <laughs> All right, keep going. All right, here we go. Untruth of emotional reasoning. Your emotional reaction to situation controls. Uh, what um, Height talks about is that our emotions are the elephant, our reason is the rider. And the elephant's so big, the elephant goes wherever he wants, and then the rider tries to rationalize what the elephant wants to do. And so emotional reasoning, we see this all the time, do not question or investigate an intuitive response because your heart will like. And so if you question it, what you're actually trying to do is squelch your creativity or your true self that's been suppressed by convention. This is where all the transgenderism and the, the sexual... Uh, activity is going on in our culture. Where do we see it in the church? Uh, I've heard it this way. I don't know what the Bible says, but I feel this is the right thing to do. Uh, I, I read the Bible sometimes, if you get honest with them, and I think we should do this. I was guilty of this growing up. I said, I go to church, I read the Bible, so therefore whatever I think about an issue is true, rather than what does the Bible actually say about the issue. And then my small group reader told me I shouldn't, but I feel I should, so I'm going to do it anyway. If we don't do or say something now, all will be lost. This is what I talked about earlier. And the use of hyper, uh, hyperbolic language all the time, never, always. You, you see this when talking to children, especially teens. You always do this. You never let me do this. That's emotional reasoning coming out. And 1 Peter says, prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. Be not, do not be conformed to our passions. And then with this are nine cognitive distortions. And I'm, I'm seeing, I'm losing my time here. Um, emotional reasoning, where feelings define your reality. That's what our culture has. 
everything's a catastrophe. The worst possible outcome is the most likely outcome. You, you probably deal with people, well, this may happen and I know it's going to happen. No, <laughs> you don't have any evidence for that, but it's emotional reasoning. <clears throat> Overgeneralization. A single negative incident is the global pattern. This happened to me one time, so therefore it's always going to happen to me that way. Black and white thinking, all or nothing terms, all is lost. There's only this and that. There's no gray in between where it could be somewhat true, not all the way true. Uh, again, that's, we, we look at life that way. Mind reading. Oh, we do this in our marriages all the time. I'm assuming what my partner or what this friend of mine thinks. I have no evidence, but I'm just assuming. I've seen this also where somebody says, well, I'm struggling with this issue. I'm not going to go because I know everybody's going to be talking about me or thinking about me. I said, no, probably not. But that's what they think. Um, labeling, assigning global negative traits to self or others. They say, you might run into a person who said, I'm bad. Uh, this, uh, I committed this sin or I did this, so that means I'm bad. Well, um, don't label yourself, and what you're going to need to do is pull them back to identity. That's an identity statement. They're labeling themselves, and so how do you disciple them back? Negative filtering. You focus on the negative. Rarely <laughs> preachers do this. You can give us million compliments, but it's that one person that gives us a negative critique, that's what we're going to focus on. That's just we're sinners, and we emotionally react. But that's negative filtering. You see that in people. Uh, and you have to help them see. Look at the positive. Look at what's happening. And how, how is God working in those things to speak into your, your negative thing? Discounting the positives. This is another thing. Positives are, are trivial. And blaming. Wow, we've got a lot of this. Blaming others. The other person is a source of your negative feelings. This happens in marriages, it happens with parents, it happens with, uh, it happens in our political realm. Uh, it's other people's fault. And then finally, un yes ma'am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dichotomous thinking. Yes, it is. But... <laughs> One thing that I have to tell people, I believe, and my ordination exams, or my ordination vows say this, I believe scripture is inerrant, infallible, the only rule of faith and practice. Scripture is inerrant. My interpretation is not. And so I can balance that. Yeah, Les? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And so it is black and white. There's only one truth. There's only one cube. But how I view the cube could be different. And so what that means is I have to hold my interpretation humbly. So I can say, yeah, I look like he's like, wait a minute, what kind of, is, is that, 
I'm not the Apostle Paul. And so I have to present Scripture, and I'm going to present Scripture the way God has convinced me it says that. But at the same time, I am humble to know that I might not, I might think I can apply Scripture perfectly in your life, but I need to listen to you. And I might, after I hear your whole story, I might say, okay, here's how Scripture really applies in your life. And so it's, it is, Scripture is black and white. There's only one truth. There's not multiple truths. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. My understanding of Him is going to be mixed with my own sin. And so it's not that I say, it's not like the, you know, the old image of an elephant and everybody's touching the elephant, so it's all, it, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, it's, I understand and I can apply, but my application is limited by my sin, by my sin. So therefore I'm humble and repentant and I push, but I do it in a way that is saying, I, I know, I will know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, there will come a time where we will know even as we are fully known. And so that's where, up until then, that's why 1 Corinthians, that's the second part of 1 Corinthians 13. What's the first part of 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient, love is kind, love believes all things, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so part of loving is being able to come in and say, I'm going to approach this. I'm convinced this is true because Scripture is truth. But I'm going to present it to you in a way that recognizes that my grasp of the truth is tainted by my own sin. And so I want to learn. Yes, Errol. Right. I think that the second one's muddy. The first one is failing to see that I am, I am able to. I am, it's not scripture's infallible, I'm infallible. And that's, that's a heresy. And so what we got to do is how do we, how do we hold our view and win the, and win the person over to our view? Yes, sir. I got this from the coddling of the American mind. Yes. So it's, it's almost exactly where you were. There was a movement in therapy in the early 80s called rational emotional mm -hmm. therapy. And these are down the line what they call the, <coughs> the same essential ideas. This is in the chapter when he talks about cognitive behavioral therapy is where he brings these up. So CBT is what it does. You had a question or comment? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, ma I was going to say this is from cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. The Beck Institute has a lot of worksheets on their website that would list this out. And they even have like thought challenges worksheets that say if you can kind of challenge some of these deficiencies. And it's like freely available. Yeah. And so that's, the, and the reason why I bring this up, you're going to be dealing with people who are struggling, and we all struggle with these in our own lives. Uh, and so, um, 
as we get into the the call out culture is actually tribal warfare where we we're, here's our us here's our them and um, and this is what we we condemn through social media posts that's a lot of stuff that happens with that um, and here's the other thing this goes I mentioned first Corinthians 13 Paul in 2nd Timothy okay so this is advice to Timothy he talks about flee youthful passions and the idea of that it's like emotional reasoning I think I'm, I'm putting words into his mouth but I think if you look in the context of what he's doing how do you deal with it he says Timothy Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome you must not be known for being quarrelsome rather you must be known for being kind to everyone, able to teach. And the word here is not just you're skillful at presenting content. It's that it has the idea, the, the word is an adjective which combines not only skill in teaching but skill in receiving. So it's teachable as well as able to teach. That's the way the word is in Greek. So teachable, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So you've got authority, you've got power, you know the truth, and you're wielding that truth in a way, it's a controlled way for the benefit of the other person. That's what gentleness is about. And so you do it with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. He's got to do the work. Leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Leading them to the knowledge of the black and white truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who's... You see what Paul's saying? This is how you treat people who are actually captured by Satan. You know what we say? Well, you just hammer them. That's not what Paul says. That person who you are convinced is trapped by Satan needs to see you as gentle and kind and teachable. That doesn't play well in conservative Christian circles. But brothers and sisters, that's what the Word of God says. It goes on in James, who is wise and understanding? By his good conduct. Well, what does that good conduct look like? Go on down. Doesn't have bitter jealousy. Doesn't have selfish ambition. Wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. If you want to be known as a wise person, able to take the word of God and apply it in a situation, how do you know that's happening? If people say, I see you as someone who's gentle and peaceable, you're open to reason, you're full of mercy, you will listen to me. But you're it's pure, you're remaining true to the scripture, but you're doing it in a way that I am able to receive it. And then the Holy Spirit's going to do the work. All right, I've run out of time. Thank you. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to go right to the next thing. Right, Father, thank you. Um, all of us are guilty of these things, Lord. We, we, we cave to our culture. And, um, Lord, I pray you'll deliver us, that you will so focus our minds, that you will... Convince us of your truth and show us how to convey that truth in a way that your spirit uses it to win people to Jesus Christ and to grow them up in him. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.